Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined. We've been doing a couple of different things on Detroit Today with our Reckoning 375 series. We've been trying to sketch out the neighborhoods that were destroyed by I-375's construction and the construction of the neighborhoods that are adjacent to the highway. We've been also trying to help knit back together Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and all that was held dear by people who lived and worked and had fun in those places. We've talked with folks who were displaced by I-375 and to historians who've done archival work around those spaces. We've also been trying to understand what the Michigan Department of Transportation wants to do with the highway and why they are doing it the way they are. We've spoken with them. We've spoken with some officials of the city of Detroit. We've spoken with people on the state's advisory committee and with urban planners who offered some concerns about what could happen to the places near I-375 if the highway is removed. Today, we want to do something a little different, though. We want to imagine what this project could be if it were done right. If Detroiters who were impacted by all of this were placed at the center of the project's mission, what kind of things could happen? What kind of harm could be alleviated? What could happen if we as Detroiters and as Michiganders reckoned with the pain that was caused for so many when I-375 was created. That's where we want to begin the conversation today. If we were going to do this the right way, I don't know, what would it look like? Where would we start? And what would be some of the goals that we might set out for the middle or the end of this decade when this massive project is finished? We've got two great guests with us who are going to help us with that imagining. Anika Goss is CEO of Detroit Future City, a local think tank that has produced a report that talks about the process so far of reimagining I-375 and the things that we aren't thinking about in that process. Uh, Anika, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Also with us is Marcia Black. She is the executive director of Black Bottom Archives, a community-driven media platform that's dedicated to centering and amplifying the voices, experiences, and perspectives of black Detroiters. Uh, Marcia, great to have you here. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Marcia, I'm going to start with you. Uh, You've been doing a lot of oral history work with the Black Bottom Archives since about 2017. I want to have you talk to our listeners about what the archives are and uh, why you decided to start this organization. So I am not a founder of Black Bottom Archives. It was founded in 2015 by P.G. Watkins and Camille Johnson. Um, And they are two black Detroiters who um, were experiencing a lot of negative narratives about black Detroit, um, black Detroiters um, when they were outside of Detroit. 
and also seeing a gap in places for black Detroiters to share their stories in the city. So they wanted to create a platform that could be dedicated to that. Um, the archival piece and the way that we do it now with oral history collection came a few years after. We started off as a digital publication that you can still see on our website. Um, but obviously we are named after Black Bottom for a reason, and I think a part of that reason is because there's a lot of resonance with what the history of Black Bottom was and the space that it was, the space that it served for black Detroiters in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we can be found all over the city now, but for a period of time, there was a place where we were focused there. It was a place of community and culture. So we've been collecting oral histories and wanting to fill in some of the historical gaps and records that are true for a lot of black communities around the world um, by using our stories to tell our histories. And so, yeah, that's that's what that work yeah. has been. Uh, talk about uh, the importance of that work in the context of this project to remove I-375. And at least for now, the plan is to, to create another road uh, there. And, and there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about what else we might do. We'll get to that a little later in the program. But, but I, I, I want to sort of establish the connection between the work you're doing and this discussion we're having about this really historically important part of town. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I think we've heard a lot of um, acknowledgement about the harm that was done through the destruction of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. And now, as folks who are able to look back at the past, we know that urban renewal just was synonymous with black people and other communities of color being removed. Um, and so this is an opportunity, I think, as a black Detroiter, a person who um, it has a future that I want to have in the city. This is an opportunity for us to rectify that and make sure that our future has some dedicated space for black Detroiters to benefit so our oral histories, this this process is us trying to make sure that those folks who are still alive, there are still survivors of people who lived in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. If you go to Eastern Market, Burt's Warehouse, Entertainment Center is right there. So there's no excuse why those folks shouldn't be present in the conversation about what the future looks like. So the oral history collection that we're doing is one part wanting to be able to tell a more complete history of that community and its impact from the perspectives of black Detroiters, but also to amplify what do those folks who are most imp impacted and their descendants want to see in the future. Yeah, uh, th that's a really important point. And we've made it a few times uh, here in the series, and I, I have been trying to make it uh, in, in other spaces as well. But there is sometimes a narrative that surfaces that says, well, this happened a really long time ago, and it would be really hard to go find the people who it happened to, uh, to include them in this process or to, to imagine how we might repair uh, the harm that was done to them. And that's just not true. And, and if, I feel like if you've spent any time in the city of Detroit, and especially in the African-American communities here in, in the city of Detroit, you know that's not true because we all know these folks. We all grew up. Uh, with with this all around us, uh, these stories, uh, the, the the history, and the people who were affected by it. You, you just got to walk out your door or pick up the phone, and you bump up against this history everywhere in Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for us, we are a smaller organization. 
and I love to tell people that we are two-person, part-time staff, um, oftentimes doing this work in a full-time sense and not getting compensated in that way. And so what that means is we don't have a dedicated comms team, you know, so the ways that we get are able to amplify our work come organically or through us using social media and different tools or going to meetings. And what we've been experiencing, though, is even with us not having a large capacity to do comms work, when we talk about Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, people are eager to share those stories. People are eager to direct us to their aunts and their great aunts and their grandparents who have those stories. So it's also not a fact of like these folks are not easy to find. They are there and they are so excited to share this history. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Anika, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, before we get to the report that uh, that DFC uh, did I, I want to have you talk just a little about what uh, I-375 uh, means to you as uh, a Detroiter, a, 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 as well as the other highways. I mean, uh, this didn't just happen on the east side of downtown. Uh, we have five major freeways that cut through uh, the city of Detroit. That's more than most cities. Uh, they all went through neighborhoods, and many of those neighborhoods, if not nearly all of them, uh, we're African-American uh, uh, neighborhoods. Uh, talk about that history of freeways and uh, and black people in Detroit. Yeah, well, I don't know the full history, so I'm not going to claim to be a historian. But I will say you're exactly right that the 1956 uh, President Eisenhower Urban Renewal Freeway Program was, was had a twofold purpose. One, it was the progress of the future to move people from one part of the city to the other part of the city, but it also had a, an, a very intentional purpose of removing what they described as uh, blighted, uh, impoverished black and brown people mm -hmm. that were living in concentrated neighborhoods throughout uh, urban centers. And... So there was this intentionality to move people. I and mean, I think what was so disturbing here in Detroit at that time is that not only did we force people to leave their homes, their new homes often, right? They mm -hmm. had just moved here. Mm -hmm. Many of them had just moved up from the Jim Crow South where they were experiencing genocide, persecution, all of these horrible things, my family and others. And then having to pick up, once they finally thought they were settled and had a job and were living in a neighborhood that was stable and had resources, they were told they had to move again. And for many people, in line with the freeway was also the Brewster Douglas home, mm -hmm. which was one of the first housing projects in the United States, public housing projects in the United States, that was actually built for white poor families mm -hmm. here in Detroit. And so if you were living in and around that part near the freeway along the I-75 interchange, you had to move again. And so this instability that's directly connected to freeways and neighborhoods I think we have taken for granted that this is something that happened to us. It mm. happened to Detroit, and it had a devastating effect on us. So I, I want to get into the report that DFC 
has done about this. There's been a lot of discussion that uh, I think has been inspired by it. Um, talk about what you learned by looking into the history of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and trying to think about what it would mean if this project to replace I-375 was actually something that was centered on reparation or restoration. Uh, uh, yeah. Gives us a, a thumbnail of this report. You know, it's really interesting because we started this process um, through our own strategic planning process. So our board and staff went to Minneapolis and we thought we were going to Minneapolis to learn about uh, communi- advancements in community development and land use. Mm. And when we got there, and, and we were also going to see the George Floyd Memorial site. And when we got there, we learned such a tremendous amount from the people of St. Paul, Minnesota, and what they had learned going through a reparative community-led process mm. along I-94 in the Rondo neighborhood, where the Rondo neighborhood once was, and still is for the most part, but the neighborhood has run through it. And when we were there, it was, it was just this aha moment mm. that we have this. Our Rondo <laughs> is in Detroit along 375. Now, we had not been a part of the 375 conversations at this point. We, we knew we had worked with Black Bottom Archives, um, with PG and, um, and even Plowshares when they, were, uh, they had done a, a, a play about what happened in, in the Black Bottom Paradise Valley um, uh, neighborhood. And we had been a partner in that, but we hadn't put it all together that there was a reckoning that was due. And that it was due specifically around this freeway. And the more we began to research what was happening around the country along reparations and a reparative investment, which are two different things, and understanding what, how other cities were organizing themselves around this work, mm-hmm. we felt that it was so important for us to issue, even if it was just the short brief, to help Detroiters understand what we're talking about and what was possible. So we didn't really see this, unlike our other Detroit, other reports at DFC where we have all the data, all the facts, <laughs> and we're going to tell you everything that's happening and then you know use our data and go and be great. We wanted to use this to be able for, so that people understood and could ask hard questions in these public meetings, they could ask and demand for more, and they could know that they are not being dramatic or unrealistic about what had happened in this place, mm. and that in fact they're at a minimum, at a minimum, reparations are due, yeah. at a minimum. But there's an opportunity for a reparative investment. And what we think of as a reparative investment is an opportunity to capitalize on infrastructure, on land sales, on anything that can actually generate wealth over time to the people 
who experienced harm and black Detroiters that are impacted. And understanding those two, reparations come directly from those that committed the harm. And I feel like that is happening at the city and where those conversations are already happening at the city council table. Um, But this idea of restoring wealth that was lost because of this, this connects back to everything. This connects back to the loss of businesses, the loss of homes, the loss of wealth of families that had began to build wealth in the 1950s. Yeah. And and in the report, I mean, I think the, the, the starkest way to describe it is we're getting this wrong. Um, yeah. We're not doing the things that maybe they did in Minneapolis. Uh, as part of the series, we've we've talked with folks in New Orleans about uh, I-10 and the Treme neighborhood um, and the process that they're going through there to try to restore um, some of what got broken. They look so different from, at least so far, what we've been doing here in Detroit. I mean, we're just not, we're not in the same conversation space even that these other, that these other things are. Apparently it seems to be. And I, but you know, I always, I remain hopeful, right? It's not over. And, but, and so the more that we can continue to push and to say that, A, this is not an ordinary road project, and we, there is nothing that you can say to make us believe that it is. Yeah. yeah. We, you, you can't put up a historic sign and expect for us to be okay with that. That's just not, that's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. This has to be a process that includes those that were impacted and a restorative process for everyone who is even impacted now, even if your grandparents were not a part of that removal, the process has to be so intentional and inclusive that you feel like you have a say in how this actually will impact this neighborhood for the future. Yeah. Okay, uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Anika Goss and Marcia Black about the I-375 project on the east side of downtown Detroit. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We're continuing our Reckoning 375 series here on Detroit Today, talking about uh, the plans to remove I-375 on the east side of downtown Detroit, replace it with a road. Of course, uh, that highway and the neighborhoods around it, uh, the construction of all of that, destroyed two historically significant African-American neighborhoods. Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Uh, our series has taken a, a close look at how we are accounting for all of that damage, all the harm that was done when the highway and the neighborhoods around it were constructed. Uh, how are we accounting for that in this process? Uh, can we account 
for it in a deeper way. Can we imagine, for instance, uh, making up for some of the harm that was done to families and businesses and institutions uh, that existed for a really long time in that community? We've got two great guests with us here. Uh, Anika Goss is CEO of Detroit Future City. It's a local think tank that has produced a report about this project and the ways that it does and does not account for that kind of restoration or reparation. Also with us is uh, Marcia Black. She's the executive director of Black Bottom Archives, a community-driven media platform that's dedicated to centering and amplifying the voices and experiences of black Detroiters. Marcia, I want to I want to have you talk just a little about the things that uh, that you're hearing from uh, people who live in the area now, who lived in the area before, as you're collecting these stories uh, about this current project, uh, about the plans uh, that that really don't go much further at this point than uh, uh, filling in the ditch that they dug to to create I-375 and putting another road there. Uh, are people aware of what's going on? Do they feel like they're part of this? Uh, what do they think about uh, the, the the plans and what they what they do and don't account for? Yeah. So um, for the past three months, we've been holding community conversations open to Black Detroiters to talk about this project, to um, learn about the history of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. And we've also been doing oral history collection. And I'd say it's kind of a split in response there are a good majority of folks who, regardless of us shaping this project around 375, people are just looking for spaces to talk about history and be in community. So sometimes they're coming and they still don't know about the project. So we are spending some of that time just letting them know that this thing is happening and like this does have an impact on you. And we do want to be able to record what you would like to see and have your you know experience be a part of that. I would say on the flip side of it is that people who are aware of the conversation that's happening are unsatisfied, I think, with the way that the conversation is happening, Mm. the way that they're the things that they are being engaged around. Um, I think right now, something that I've been reflecting on as as we're asking people in conversation to share their visions, visioning is an exercise that we have to get in the practice of doing. And for a lot of Black communities, Detroit specifically, development is something that's happened to us and not something that we've been a part of. So it's also a matter of us building the muscle and us rethinking about this project as another thing that has to happen to us. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I I think it's really interesting that you're holding these uh, these meetings, these gatherings to talk about this, um, because when we talk with officials at MDOT, that's what they say they're doing, right? And have been doing for years, uh, that they've been having public meetings and that that's how they have been including the community in in this process. Uh, Something tells me that uh, there's a big difference between what's happening at these MDOT meetings and what's happening uh, at yours. Do the people at your, uh, your meetings, are they going to the MDOT meetings? Do they feel welcome in the process or do they feel like this is all really separate from from the effort that that uh, that you guys are making right now so we were also attending the MDOT meetings and that's a part of why we started this project is because when we looked around the room there was nobody 
who live there or who work there who could speak to that history. And as a community archive, like that felt like a really important gap. And when we're talking about these folks, they're oftentimes elders also. So mm. expecting them to come to your meeting is just not. It doesn't work that it way. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So we're a community organization and we can be more flexible about how we engage with our community. And we're experts in our own community, so we know what it takes. And so I think it's just a matter of that. And I think the other thing is who's in the room for our meetings and who's in the room for theirs is very different. So our meetings are only open to black Detroiters. That's a really different type of conversation we're happening than folks that are stakeholders and, you know, elected officials and, you know, executive directors or CEOs over things being in the room and having conversations. Our conversations are a dedicated space for black Detroiters. Yeah. And that's important because this happened to black Detroiters. I mean, yes, there were other people who lived in Black Bottom and, and Paradise and had businesses in, in, in Paradise Valley, but the vast majority of them were African Americans. And the reason that what happened happened was because it was a majority African American neighborhood. It, it was easier to do something to that neighborhood, to those people, than it would have been to do uh, to another to another neighborhood. So mm-hmm. so for people who are, I guess, wondering, well, why does it have to be uh, a meeting just for black Detroiters? It's because uh, that's who was singled out here in the first place. Mm-hmm. This is about black, right. uh, black Detroit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Anika, I, I wonder what uh, what you make of what we're hearing from yeah. folks in Detroit about this process. Uh, as I said, MDOT, uh, when we talk with them, says, look, we're, we're, we're doing this. We are meeting with people in the community. We're hearing what they have to say. Uh, at, at the same time, uh, you know, this other process uh, seems to look very different. And when you talk to people about going to the MDOT meetings, uh, what you hear is not terribly representative, I, I think, of the experience that most of us have in the city. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of trouble. And, you know, Marcia, probably because she's been in, involved in this part of it longer than I have. But I do have a lot of trouble reconciling that um, because MDOT, and and I will say that the conversations that we've had recently with MDOT and which, with HNTB, they are starting to recognize that if people are saying, no, we have not had this conversation before, mm-hmm. MDOT is saying, okay, well, maybe we haven't had this conversation before. <laughs> As opposed to saying, yes, we have. We did talk about this. Yes, we, you agreed to this. And I, I feel like that part of it is triggering for black people, mm. right? Mm. For you to say, I, I said that I was okay for you to do this thing. And I know that I didn't say that. Right? Right. And that that feels like what happened in 1956, <laughs> yeah. that where we were told this is progress, this this is going to make the neighborhood beautiful, this is going to and you're going to move in a neighborhood that's better. And in fact, that's not what happened. And I feel like that is. I feel like that is part of the rub. Mm. I know that the calls that we're getting at DFC 
um, are much more of help us because we don't understand why they don't understand what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, go ahead. I think that's very telling. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. people, the way people feel this has gone um, is reflective, I think, of 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 a reality that that we have to have more at the center of the of the conversation. So I have a lot of um, I'm I'm really trying to be optimistic here, mm-hmm. Stephen, so that we <laughs> don't have to blow up this whole thing, right? Like it feels very delicate. Mm-hmm. It feels very, very delicate. And and it's unfortunate that it feels this delicate, because, fragile, because it doesn't have to be. And it's demonstrated in other cities that you can work with your public sector and you can actually have an outcome where the community feels heard, they feel a part of the process, the state feels like they can actually provide good, sound infrastructure practices where everybody feels like they are winning. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I know that, you know, we sort of turned over the apple cart early or, or it, it was early for us. It was late for MDOT because they felt like they were moving along in this process. But what I want to be optimistic about is that the city is finally getting involved and saying this is problematic and Mm -hmm. we're hearing from our constituents and we need to get involved. So the people at the city that should be involved are involved, infrastructure, planning and development. Um, And that I feel like that that has some um, there, there is some opportunity there. The private sector is also getting involved. So yes. it's more than just, you know, Black Bottom Archives and We the People and DFC who are yelling about everything all the time. <laughs> it's also sort of the civic leadership that is also, you know, Downtown Detroit Partnership, Eastern Market, the Kresge Foundation are also saying this is a problem. And we want to do this in a restorative process. And we want to build a round table to do that. Yeah, yeah. And so what I mean by this is fragile is that there is this opportunity right now for the public sector to sit at this round table with us so that we can actually create the kind of process that feels where community can feel like they have agency and voice in the outcome of this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Marcia Black and Anika Goss. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
we're talking about restoration and reparation as it relates to the removal of I-375 on the east side of downtown Detroit. Uh, this is part of our series on Detroit Today, Reckoning 375, where we have been taking a pretty close look at those plans, but also trying to get to some of the voices of the stakeholders uh, in this project, uh, folks who were harmed by the construction of the freeway, neighborhoods that went away when I-375 and Lafayette Park and some of the other places that uh, we now know as part of Detroit were constructed. How do we account for all of that in this project? How do we make sure that this actually addresses some of the harms that were done? Uh, We're talking with Anika Goss, who's CEO of Detroit Future City. Also with us is Marcia Black, Executive Director of Black Bottom Archives. I want to start today with Bruce in Detroit. Bruce, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, and to your guests. You know, I, I totally agree with your guests that the public sector should be involved so it doesn't appear to be dismissive or disrespectful. I think that during the period of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, it was uh, segregation was the soup of the day. So I don't see why people now appear to be shocked when it's uh, Black people only that may be uh, involved in some of the groundwork, especially the talks. Mm -hmm. And what does reparative justice look like when there was so much loss in between that period and now, including those families that were directly impacted? How do you uh, repair that, really, in in large part? I mean, a plaque is is non-tangible. It doesn't do anything for those families who are impacted. And I I would like to quote Aretha Franklin, give me something that we can feel. (laughs) We're still poor. We have Martin Luther King highways all across the United States, but we're still poor. Mm. So I would just like to know what reparative uh, justice looks like. Uh, Bruce, it's a wonderful question. Uh, And I love your uh, invocation of Aretha, of course, (laughs) to try to highlight that for us. (laughs) Give us something we can feel. Uh, I'm going to have our guests, both of our guests, uh, talk about that. And that really is uh, why I invited uh, them here, was to to imagine just a little bit, dream just a little bit. What could we do? What would be reparative? Uh, What does that word even mean? Uh, in the context of something that was so awful when it when it happened, uh, uh, Marcia, I'll, I'll start with you. Yes, um, also really love the Aretha Franklin quote <laughs> this morning. Um, I so for us, we're using the framework of reparations, which I think can work in collaboration with what Anika has been describing around reparative investments. Um, so in short, reparations, right, the first step is to acknowledge the harm. The second step is, you know, what actions are we going to take to repair or make whole the folks that have been harmed? And the other piece is how to prevent the ongoing harm. And I think there's a lot that reparative investments can offer to this question about how do we restore and how do we repair? Mm-hmm. And something I've noticed is that when when we think about the history of Black Bottom, it's like, you know, the reason why people have like the these fond memories is not because of the material wealth that was present in that place. People have these fond memories because of the community care and this culture of self-sufficiency that made it so that black people can thrive in the midst of racial segregation. So 
some of that can't be restored purely just by economic things that don't take into consideration the community aspect. So I think uh Things like community land trusts or things like cooperatives, things that allow for there to be a community benefit to wealth generation is something that has to exist Mm -hmm. in this aspect. And then I think in terms of just thinking about how to prevent the ongoing harm, does displacement always does development always require displacement? Because that's the harm that black Detroiters especially continue to experience in the city is that displacement has development has to come at the cost of our displacement. So how can we also think about with this project? how we could do that differently. So so let's let's go a little further down that road. Uh, you're going to get rid of the highway, you're going to create a road. We, we know that are the, the, those are the two things that are almost certain to happen here. Um, how do you account for displacement if if you go further than that, right? Uh, if we talk about the land that might be created on either side of this new road, right? It'll be skinnier than the highway. Uh, that means there's possible development. Uh, or if we started to look beyond the highway itself to some of the neighborhoods <clears throat> that were created uh, before uh, I-375 and, and during that construction, uh, in your mind, uh, what does that mean to account for displacement when we do that? I think it means that we have to really be... Um observant of our past and really take in consideration how to not repeat these things. So there's a lesson around the violence of displacement that Black Bottom tells a story of, but then there's contemporary things that are happening where Black Detroiters are are being displaced in the name of development and a more present day impact. So something that oftentimes happens, you have development, you have a new influx of resources, the resources don't benefit the community that's there. So that's a, also a part of displacement. You're, you know, you're moving people away from being able to benefit from what's happening right here where they're at, which is why I think some of these cooperative communal efforts that allow for there to be generational wealth that multiple people can be a part of is going to be really important with this new project. And these, they say potentially 20 to 30 acres, which is a, good, a lot of land, good chunk of land right there. A lot there. of land. Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, uh, Anika, uh, go ahead and, and talk yeah. about uh, what reparative work would look yeah. like here? I think, you know, I, I what I want to see, what, what we're going to be pushing for, what we're designing for, is an, an investment strategy that has some of the elements that might feel familiar, small business, affordable housing, because that's, that's also what we still need. But there is also an opportunity for enterprise building here hmm. and enterprise building specifically that's led and invested and benefited by black people. And we haven't had that surprise at a, for a city of 78% sure. black people. We still have not thought about how you actually create w- true wealth and you do that by enterprise. And when I say enterprise building, I mean large businesses. I mean developers, large developers, um, acquisition and land holdings that are held by black investment organizations, whether they're nonprofit or for profit. This there is an opportunity here to create an immense that there regardless of whether it's black or not, there is wealth to be created here. Hmm. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Someone is going to get paid to be clear. Yeah. yeah. I want us to make sure that at every step of the way that there is an opportunity for black people, for descendants of black bottom to benefit, to be the first to be there directing where those investment dollars are held. And so you have to sort of do that in advance. And that's some of what we're working on now. You, that, that isn't just going to happen. No one is going to turn to us and say, hey, would you like 25 acres <laughs> to do something big with? No one is going to do that. We have to be able to work on that now, yeah. whether it's, it's a land structure, whether it's a community land structure, or whether it's a larger land structure, where it's venture capital vehicles, whether it's other kinds of investment vehicles. These are the kinds of things that we want to see available for black Detroiters to benefit from as a part of this process. Yeah. That is what reparative investment looks like. That's what it the would opportunity like. to restore wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Bruce, really appreciate uh, the call and the provocative question. Let's go next to Frank. Frank in Detroit. Uh, what's on oh, your man, mind? How are you doing this morning? Good. How are you? Not too bad. I like uh, your panel. Everybody's got their right mind, but I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, the 375 project is a waste of time. Now, some of the words that you guys are using are reparative work, reparations, and displacement. In my opinion, if you look at what's going on along West Grand Boulevard with Henry Ford getting ready to build a brand new hospital, mm-hmm. all of these homes throughout that area, whether it be east of Grand River or just west of Woodward, all of this property here is getting ready to blossom, blossom into a half a million dollar market. Now, if you want to repair something, if you want to be able to do some form of reparation, I, I would I would leave the 375 project alone and try to reestablish that black bottom, but in a different location with the same mindset. Hmm. Because in all actuality, it is nothing more than a mindset. Uh, Frank, I, um, that's a really that's a really interesting idea, right? Uh, try to reestablish, I guess, what existed. Before 375, but do it someplace else, and don't don't worry about um, don't worry about what 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 happens with the, that particular project. I don't know. That's it's you know this is kind of what I wanted to do on the program today was get these ideas out there, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a bad idea. Uh, it, it's all about uh, the discussion about it. But but I'll give our, our guests a chance to to react to that idea as well. Anika, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, why can't we do both? <laughs> that's a that's an even better question, right? <laughs> why can't we do both? Yeah, <laughs> like I feel like that's that is there. It's a very Detroit thing that we can only have one thing at a time, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I love that idea of of reestablishing every place where there's going to be where there's wealth to be made and where there are harms, previous harms had that we should be looking for enterprise building there too. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not letting we're not letting I three seventy five and Black Bottom go. Go. Yeah. Uh Marcia? I a hundred and ten percent agree. Both <laughs> and both, both and. and right. <laughs> we can walk and chew gum at the same time here in Detroit. Uh all right, uh, let's go to Tim in Minneapolis. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Thanks. Having this fantastic conversation today. So I'm uh, in Minneapolis today. I split my time between Minneapolis and Detroit, and I'm really interested in 
transportation and social equity issues. Um, the panel members are great today. Uh, uh, and since I'm a white man, I should not be participating in this decision-making, but I'm hoping that one of the things that's considered is to take this whole project away from MDOT because they're a transportation agency, and at the beginning and the end of the day, they're focusing on how many vehicles are moved through the area, what's the traffic volume, and how they serve that. Sure. And that's not, I think, what needs to happen here. The main thing that needs to happen is to um, give our, give the land back. Um and, you know, work with land deed title folks and figure out who owned that land before and get it back in their the, their hands or the hands of their descendants and 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 then work on the uh, reparative investment in the enterprise building, which, you know, your panelists and the other folks for, uh, working on this all have a real Hmm. Uh, handle on what needs to happen, but it's just going to, the outcomes are going to fall short if, you know, there's freeway projects around the country that took away the freeway, and they didn't put back a freeway, and they didn't put back even a major road. Yeah. They just, like, yeah. Well, right. I mean, I listen, uh, you don't have to sell me on the idea that the, the, the road focus here is the wrong one. Um, uh, and there, there are a lot of things I would do, not just uh, at I three seventy five, but but at all of the points where freeways in our community uh, divide communities that that would just get rid of them. I mean, I, I don't know why we built them in the first place. It, it never made it never made planning sense. It never made uh, equity sense. Um, I, I would, for instance, get rid of the lodge all the way up to to 94 or maybe even to the Davison um, uh, to bring back those neighborhoods. Uh, but but I, I think there is a practical question about all of this, which is that, you know, the, the, the money for this is coming from the federal government and the Department of Transportation. It has to flow through uh, the, 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 the transit authority in the in the state. I don't know if we could just uh, snatch it from them. But 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 the idea of fronting something else i think is is really what what tim is getting at here marcia can i um add something too just sure. about the maybe not uniqueness of the history but something worth mentioning about black bottom and paradise valley and the black folks who live there there were black homes there were black businesses but oftentimes they did not own they that didn't land own it, yeah so people who were being displaced were also dealing with the fact that oftentimes there's lack of documentation because they weren't owners and then they didn't actually even initially get a payment or if they did it was completely <laughs> like mm -hmm. not, not at all what they should be receiving yeah. so we're also just working under a di different set of circumstances where in rondo where there are still homes that are standing potentially and folks that can speak to that those the homes that existed are gone, gone and they didn't own those homes and they didn't own that land so we have to be more creative about how we figure out how to make equity in yeah, this process no, that's a really that's a really important point uh marcia anika we've got about a minute and a half left but uh but go ahead yeah i you know one of the things that um we learned when uh marcia and i were both at a reconnecting rondo conference um last month and the one of the major lessons for me was um, that the the public sector, the, the road commission or the Minnesota Department of Transportation was not the center of everything. Wow. Yeah. I-94 
was not the center of, of the Rondo community. Hmm. The, the community itself, the redevelopment of that community was the focus. There happened to be a road that was also there. Yeah. Wow. And it put it in such perspective. I feel like that's really where we we have to get to that, right? Because yeah. that's how we ordinarily build freeways. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely is. So, so I, we're, we're going to run out of time, but I, I want to have you yeah. talk about who is leading that in Minneapolis. If it's not the Department of Transportation, who is in the lead? Right. We were we spent a day and a half trying to figure that out. It was everybody. <laughs> it's everybody. <laughs> they have a round table. They have community partners. They have a number of nonprofit civic leaders and public sector that are all at a round table kind of working together that with community. Wow. Yes. Wow. OK. Uh, Anika Goss and Marcia Black. Really, really great to have uh, both of your Thank voices you. in this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All Thank right. you so much, Stephen. Yep. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.